Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, I talk to Tom O'Grady, who's assistant professor at the Department of Political Science at University College London. We discuss this article, Careerist versus Coal Miners, Welfare Forms and the Substantive Representation of Social Groups in the British Labour Party, which was published in 2019 in Comparative Political Studies. In the article, Tom investigates how politicians' social background matters for their preferences and legislative behaviour. He documents how, much like in other countries, the number of MPs with a working-class background has declined in the UK over the last decades. Many of them have been replaced with career politicians. The article shows that MPs with a working-class background indeed have different policy preferences and have behaved different in the context of welfare reform. We also discuss how British welfare politics have changed more generally. Tom's new book project analyzes how elite discourse on welfare issues has changed public opinion over the last decades. From this perspective, the frames introduced by New Labour already created the basis of public support for the austerity measures since 2010. If you want to know more about Tom and his research, you can follow him on Twitter or visit his website. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tarek. Today, we're going to talk about an article of yours in which you investigate how the social background of politicians of the British Labour Party has changed over the past years or decades and how this has affected their policy positions. Before we talk about the article in more detail, I just wanted to ask you, what was the motivation for you to start this project? So it was a bit of a combination of, of actual, I think, personal motivation and uh, substantive sort of academic motivation. I mean, personal motivation is that, you know, when I was at university, I was actually, I ran the University Labour Party and I was involved in student politics. And I saw firsthand the development of what I think of as a political class in the UK at university. And I saw people, some of whom are now MPs, um, pursuing professional politics from their early 20s. Um, and so that was one thing that I was very interested in this idea of the professionalization of politics or develop the development of a political class, which is part of the story of the paper. I was also interested in um, working class representation, or, or I should say working class under representation. So in the UK, as I show in the paper, there's been a big decline in the representation of working class people and around the world Working class people are massively underrepresented in politics, but I didn't see a lot of work that was asking the next question, which is, does that matter for policy? What is the impact of that on public policy and on politics? Uh, and the UK represents a particularly dramatic case of the decline in representation. And so it was really a combination of those two motivations. The third thing I would say, the additional thing is that I've had a longstanding interest in, in welfare reform and the politics of welfare. Uh, and in particular, I noticed when I started studying British welfare reforms that there was this big clash within the Labour Party. And I noticed that 
just anecdotally, to me, it seemed that some of that class uh, clash fell along class lines between legislators, between MPs. And so those, I guess those three things really were the, were the starting point for the paper. So you you start out the paper based on an observation, and you've already mentioned it now. That is that the social background of politicians really in many advanced democracies has changed. Can you tell me a little more about how it has changed and maybe also why you think that is the case? Sure. So so let's start with the first question. And I think you can break that first question down into two parts. So one question is... Uh, what's happened to working class representation in Europe? And the answer to that is that the working class has always been underrepresented in European politics and that underrepresentation has worsened over time. So uh, Heinrich Best, who's at Friedrich Schiller University in Germany, is, is one of the people that's documented this right back to the 1950s. And he shows if you go back to the 1950s, somewhere around 10% of European legislators were working class, as defined by having come from a manual trade or a working class occupation before politics. Today, that's somewhere around 2% to 3%. And now, obviously, within parties of the left, uh, that decline is, has been steeper. Um, so working class representation has fallen a lot um, around Europe. And uh, alongside that, there's been the development of a professional uh, class of politicians, people who, before they went into elected politics, worked in politics in some way, either within the party apparatus uh, or very often in local government or in occupations that one might think of as being extremely close to parties like think tanks, polling organizations, or PR organizations that are strongly linked to parties. So those two trends have been seen across Europe. They take different forms in different countries. Scandinavia has a bit more of a sort of civil service background in its career politicians. Germany is probably the case that actually most approximates the UK in that there's a very big political class whose background is within the, the SPD or the CDU. Um, and the second question you asked is, why has there been this change in representation? So um, the UK case is the case I know best. So, so let me just talk a little bit about the UK case, but, but also more generally. So if you think about why there's been a decline in representation, you can think of that decline as coming from three possible sources. I think one is, has there been a decline in the demand for working class legislators from the public? Has there been a decline in the supply of working class legislators coming forward for election? Or has there been a change in the institutions that link um, potential candidates to potential seats or potential positions on party lists? So if we start with the first of those, there is very little evidence that there's been a decline in the demand for working class politicians. If you ask people, what kind of legislator would you like? And this has been done by, amongst others, Nick Vivian and Marcus Wagner and co-authors, uh, Rosie Campbell and Philip Cowley, uh, Nick Carnes in the US and in the UK. All of those studies show that people overwhelmingly uh, favor working class politicians and want working class politicians at least as much as they want politicians from other backgrounds. And you see this in politicians themselves. Um, Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, is the classic example, who spent his entire election campaign talking about how his dad was a bus driver. So politicians know that voters, or seem to intuitively sense that, voters want politicians from, quote-unquote, an ordinary background. So I don't think it's a demand story. The supply story, I think, is the main thing that lies behind this. 
So one of the things that lies behind it is the, um, if you like, severing of links between political parties and social institutions, and particularly trade unions. So in the UK, trade unions used to be the main way in which working class politicians went into politics. And, you know, even back in the 1980s, around a third of Labour MPs came from actual manual occupations, including particularly coal mining and shipbuilding. And the classic routine was that you would be a coal miner. And Dennis Skinner, the classic example, famous Labour MP until 2019, was a coal miner for about 10 years in Derbyshire, then became a full-time official with the National Union of Mine Workers, and the National Union of Mine Workers sponsored him to enter politics, and he became an MP. And that was the way that working class people went into politics. And those links between, on the one hand, working class people and unions, and on the other hand, unions and parties, have massively declined. And on the right, you know, there have been similar declines in things like the link between religious organizations and parties. The second supply reason is that it's actually become much more expensive to run for office. And particularly in the UK here, the estimate is that most candidates in the UK spend somewhere around 30 to 40,000 pounds of their own money to actually stand for office. So part of the reason is that campaigning has become much more professionalized and actually parties really require candidates to leave their job for some period and campaign full time, often for several months before an election. Now, if you work in a factory or in a coal mine, it's very unlikely, A, that you can afford to take that time off, or B, that your employer will even let you. Whereas, let's say you work for a PR organization where your professional success depends on your contacts with parties, actually your organization would be delighted probably to give you a paid sabbatical for three months to go and become a candidate because you'll come back even better at your job. So it's it's a combination of a lack of roots into politics from unions, but also the increasing professionalization and expense of actually becoming a candidate. A little bit in the UK also um, a change in the institutions the third me uh, mechanism I talked about, which is that the party leadership um, has started to take a bigger role in, uh, in selecting candidates. Then in the article, really, the main argument is that this changing background, this changing social or occupational background of politicians, of legislators, matters for their political positions. Why is that the case? So I talk in the article about... Um, really three mechanisms that I think lie behind the uh, link between the background of politicians and their positions, their political positions. And by political positions here, I mean, imagine some kind of left-right position uh, on economic issues in this paper, because I'm talking about welfare reform. Now, there's a big debate about um, occupations and political preferences. Um, Herbert Kitschop and Philip Raymond have written a great article about this. And the debate there is about, you know, is it the case that occupations directly shape people's um, political beliefs? Or is it the case that certain types of people are more likely to go into certain occupations to begin with? I think the answer to that question is surely that it's some of both. And that's what I argue in the article. So if you've spent your career uh, before politics in a coal mine or in a shipbuilding uh, uh, factory, um, you've been surrounded by people from a working class background. You've also probably had some experience, particularly more recently, of economic insecurity, of colleagues being laid off, of mass unemployment in the area you come from. And that, as we know from the comparative political economy literature, strongly shapes the views of voters. So it should also logically strongly shape the views of politicians as well. Now, in addition to that, 
of course, certain types of people are likely to go into certain occupations. And here I'm thinking, uh, of course, it's the case that more left-wing people may, at least in the past, have gone into working-class occupations. But also, crucially, it's the case that people who are more politically ambitious, people who want to become ministers, and people who are more intrinsically loyal to their party leadership are more likely to go into what I term in the paper careerist occupations, occupations that help them basically uh, quickly step into um, elected politics. And the the final um, mechanism I talk about in the paper is what I call career incentives. So, and this, again, I'm particularly talking about um, careerist legislators here, the professional class, is that you don't have anything to fall back on. If you, from your early 20s, have done nothing but try to get into elected politics, you don't have a profession to go back to, and the only way that you earn professional respect or you progress professionally is through politics, then when you get into politics, you want to win elections, you want to be loyal to the party leadership to get ahead. So what I argue is that you have legislators who are differentiated in two ways. One is, uh, on average, working class legislators are more left wing, or at least in this period were more left wing than the political class, the careerist legislators. And the careerist legislators are both more loyal to the party leadership and care more about winning elections uh, than their um, working class counterparts. I guess for the first argument, there is an important underlying assumption, and that is that the individual ideology of a legislator matters for how they behave as a politician and in parliament. Can we just assume that? Or aren't politicians just really driven by these more office and vote-seeking incentives? Well, I think what I argue in the paper, and, and you know what I think in general, is that is that you can think of politicians having some mix of both uh, motivations, and that uh, what I'm talking here about is is average behaviour. I'm not I'm not making a theory that I'm not saying that all working class legislators care only about. Uh, you know, enacting left-wing policies and don't want to get ahead. And in fact, under under the Labour Party in the 1990s and 2000s, I talk about there were some prominent senior cabinet ministers who came from working-class backgrounds, like like Alan Johnson or John Prescott. So, of course, there were working-class legislators who care a lot about uh, career progression, and of course, there are quote-unquote careerist legislators who care a lot about left-wing economic causes. But 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 the argument here is about average behaviour, uh, not 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 about absolute behavior. In the paper then, and you've mentioned this already a little bit, you focus on welfare state preferences and especially welfare state reforms under new labor. And this distinction between working class politicians or working class background politicians on the one hand and careerists on the other hand, what do you find in terms of how these backgrounds have mattered for the new labor period in particular? So what happened under New Labour is that I argue that the welfare reforms that were introduced by Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and, and the New Labour Party from 94 onwards in the party platform, from 97 onwards in office, were a set of reforms that directly split, if you like, these two camps of politicians in the Labour Party. So the welfare reforms that were brought in were what we might term welfare to work. So they were making actually not many cuts in welfare, but big changes in the format of welfare, conditionality, means testing, some limited use of sanctioning. Um, and these were reforms which tried to uh, 
sort of cut the link between poverty alleviation and welfare, but tried to increase the link between getting people back to work and welfare. And this was seen by the left of the Labour Party as a betrayal of the party's traditional values and its traditional voters. So working class legislators on average were more opposed to these reforms than others. On the other hand, they were seen by the party leadership as a key means to win back the support of middle class voters. So a little bit as as Jane Gingrich talked about on this podcast recently, there's obviously been this big change in the social composition of voters and in the preferences of middle class voters. And Labour had also lost um, several elections in a row and the leadership perceived that the reason for this was that they were not on the side of middle-class voters. And here was a policy that seemed to offer a perfect way to show that they were on the side of middle-class voters, that they were going to make welfare pay, sorry, they were going to make work pay, they were going to lower the welfare bill, and so on. So careerist legislators who wanted to get re-elected, or thought it was important to get re-elected, perceived that welfare reform was an important issue to support, and it became a very favourite policy of the party leadership. So they, they then perceived that in order to get ahead in the party, they had to demonstrate loyalty to the leadership by supporting these welfare reforms. So it was an almost perfect, if you like, wedge issue between these two sets of voters, uh, of, of politicians, sorry. Empirically, then, uh, you also really test and investigate this question. And you do it in a quite novel way that's becoming increasingly popular in political science. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about it in a way that a non-specialist will also understand what you're doing in your analysis. Oh, that's quite a challenge on a, on a podcast, but let, let me try. So the, well, so, so what I do in the paper is I use MPs speeches on welfare reform to measure their ideology. So why would I do that? And why would I not use their votes is probably the first question people might ask. Now, in the UK, as in most European party systems, there is very strong party control over voting. And most MPs, almost all of the time in the House of Commons tend to vote with their party leadership. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't think differently about the things they're voting on. It doesn't mean they don't have different preferences. But because of the, for many reasons, uh, the strong party loyalty uh, uh, and the strong party control over voting, there is very little variation between politicians in the way that they vote within legislatures. However, in somewhere like the House of Commons, there is a very large freedom that MPs have to actually speak as they choose. And that's particularly true of the House of Commons in the UK, where party leaders actually don't have really any control over which MPs speak in the House, uh, and the Speaker actually calls MPs to speak. And the, um, I guess the basic assumption then is that what you say in some way reveals what you think. So the idea is that the um, speeches that people make offer a window into their ideology. And actually, it's genuinely true in the House of Commons, you often see MPs using their speeches even to, um, to, to give reservations about the way they're voting, to give nuance, to give context, or to suggest ways in which they don't support what they're voting on. So there's a lot of um, revealed preferences in the speeches of MPs that are not revealed in their votes. Now, I use a technique called word scores. It's actually very simple. If you want to give a very quick explanation of it, it's uh, basically what I do is I take a set of MPs who I know are really, really opposed to welfare reform and another set of MPs that I know are really, really supportive of it, uh, the latter being the party leadership, and I count the words that they use in welfare reform speeches. Then I take all the other MPs in the House of Commons 
and MPs who use a similar set of words to the um, pro-welfare reform group are going to be scored as uh, more right-wing and welfare reform, more pro-reform. Vice versa, MPs who use words that are more similar to the set of MPs that I know were very anti-reform are going to be scored as more left-wing and more anti-reform. And you can place all MPs then on a a left-right spectrum based on their words, uh, where the more similar you are to those what you might call two anchor groups, the more left-wing or right-wing you're going to be. So I think there's a there's a normative point hidden or maybe not that much hidden in the paper. And I guess you would agree um, that having, again, more working class politician in parliament would not be a bad thing or would be a good thing. Um, what I'm wondering about a bit is the the counterfactual to the situation we have now in a in a context where parliamentary democracy has changed a lot. Would working class politician function the same way, be able to build the same bridges and so on as they used to maybe 40 years ago? Well, that, that's a great question. I mean, I, I should say I, I didn't see the paper as being a normative paper. Obviously, it, you know, there's huge debate, as you know, about whether welfare reforms were a good idea. And, and, and I have a lot of work on that myself. But, but you know, I think, I think the normative point for me is more that it's not policy based it's that the voice of working class voters over this period was not being expressed through uh, their representatives so the substantive representation of working class interests lowered and that and that and in a sense it doesn't matter what those interests were uh, now if we go to if we go forward to today actually um, support for welfare particularly in the UK has fallen a lot and it's fallen a lot amongst working class voters and lower income voters so I think it's unlikely today. Now, of course, there are there are almost no working class voters, uh, sorry, politicians left in, in in the Labour Party now. So one couldn't even do this study today. If there were working class politicians in the Labour Party today, I don't think it's welfare that would be the issue that splits them. I actually think the issue that would split them would be the same issues that are splitting working class and middle class voters across Europe. And that's going to be social issues and in particular immigration. So, in, in fact, the Labour Party today, uh, much, many more of its legislators are urban professionals, much like the um, predominant voting base of many social democratic parties in Europe. So I think the issue that would split them today, if they existed, would be immigration. And of course, interestingly, actually, the place in Europe where you do see working class politicians now is actually in populist right parties. So I um, I probably shouldn't say this, but I just reviewed a paper on German politics that showed that the AFD has actually brought in a sizable number of working class legislators. Um, there's also a great paper by uh, Johanna Rickner and Ernesto uh, uh, Dalbo and others on Sweden showing actually that the Sweden Democrats um, seem to have brought in a large number of working class people into politics that weren't there before. And again, you know, one of the issues that brought them in was, was immigration and particularly with the AFD. Mm-hmm. I guess it very much speech speaks to uh, Jane Mansbridge's point about why descriptive representation matters and the idea that if you have a certain type of background, if you have certain type of shared experiences, then this will matter in terms of how you perceive political questions. And then especially with issues that are newly on the agenda, these types of experiences will matter for politics. Absolutely, and I completely agree with that. And I and I and I think I think as I said, I think normatively it's it's a bad thing that there are 
almost no working class politicians, almost regardless of the policy consequences. But in addition, it has, as I show in this paper, this substantive effect where on the on the issue I'm looking at, the interests of working class voters were not being represented. And I, and I think you have to say the same thing is true today to some extent over immigration, although actually parties of the mainstream centre right now, I think, are actually moving towards a, a much stronger representation of that position. Mm-hmm. You've already just mentioned it. Uh, you have an ongoing book project in which you investigate how British welfare politics and welfare policies have changed over the past decades. And you really look at the role of public opinion, but also elites capacity to change public opinion on welfare. Can you tell me a little more about the project? Great. Yeah. And and, and actually it does link to this, this paper in the sense that the, the paper on working class and careerist politicians is going to be a chapter in the book. And in fact, the paper originated from that larger project, which was my PhD thesis. So so what's the book about? So in the UK, uh, there has been very, very dramatic welfare reforms really over the past 30 years, but particularly in the last 10 years. And I think, you know, I don't know if European political science has really caught up with what's actually happened in the UK There, since since 2010, there have been very large cuts in unemployment benefits, um, large rises in the use of sanctioning and conditionality to basically punish people who don't meet the conditions for their benefits. Um, and there's now a large set of papers, uh, including the economists using exogenous variation and exposure to these welfare reforms to show that they've led to directly to rises, large rises in absolute poverty, in relative poverty, in uh, homelessness, in suicides, and in many other forms of, of, of social ills. And um, The question that the paper really is, or the book really is asking is, how did the UK get to this point where we have a set of welfare reforms that seem to be uh, pushing a large number of people into, into poverty and homelessness? Uh, and the, the thing that the, the book then acknowledges is that actually these reforms until recently have been extremely popular with the public. And if you look, go back to 2010, which is when the conservative led coalition came to power in the UK, and began to enact these more um, uh, sort of deep cuts to welfare. Uh, welfare was actually at the least popular it had been in recorded history when they came to power. And so the book then asks, okay, so it was clearly a vote winner in 2010, and the conservatives clearly perceived that now was the time for them to radically reform Britain's welfare. How did public opinion get to that point? Was was it the case that the public simply sort of autonomously or independently changed their minds about welfare? Was it due to some bottom-up set of processes like changes in the class structure? Um, or was it down to some kind of top-down process? And I argue that the reason that the British public turned against welfare really up to 2010 and slightly afterwards was actually due to a big change, a very dramatic change in the way that both politicians and the media talk about people on welfare. There's, again, some of the link to the paper I was just talking about. Uh, talk about people on welfare and talk about um, the welfare system. So there's been a very dramatic rise, at least up until around about 2015, in negative um, portrayals of the users of the welfare system and negative portrayals of the system itself. And what we know from decades of research really on uh, political behavior is that that kind of exposure to that kind of rhetoric over a sustained period 
and from all political parties in the UK, Labour and the Conservatives, is very likely to have changed people's views. So in that sense, the book is really a top-down story that says that actually, rather than public opinion, particularly in the 1990s and 2000s, being the thing that changed policy, it was actually that policy changed first, politicians changed the way they talked and changed their policies, and public opinion actually followed from that. So the policies that had the, the gravest impact really were the policies that you're focusing on since 2010. But then your argument goes that already the new labor period and new labor's agenda and policies kind of created the ground that these policies then could enact it on, right? That's right, yes. So, so how did that happen? Okay, sure. So, so I think if you, if you want to divide up British welfare reforms into a series of periods, very crudely, you could do it like this, which is that under the Margaret Thatcher and John Major governments up to 1997, there were big cuts in the generosity of welfare payments, but not many changes to the format in which benefits were paid. Uh, from 97 to 2010, under New Labour, um, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, you saw actually a rise in the generosity of some benefits, but in particular of tax credits. So actually redistribution went up uh, and child poverty fell. Inequality was quite flat, despite what was going on in the economy. But the format in which benefits were delivered was reformed a lot more. So there was the uh, a deepening of some reforms that happened under major, but uh, a much wider set of reforms that um, introduced conditionality, some sanctioning, and in particular really uh, tried to uh, strengthen the link between coming off uh, benefits and into work. And so What accompanied those reforms from New Labour was was a really dramatic change in the way that it talked. It said that the welfare system was not working. It said that taxpayers were paying for a set of benefits that the users, who were friends as a separate group, were using to be lazy, uh, were using to sit back and do nothing. And so it was really that the rhetoric that accompanied this change in the format of benefits that changed the way in which welfare users and the welfare system were talked about. And crucially, in, in the book, I argue, actually, I think this was accidental. So so I don't think that New Labour set out to turn the public against welfare. I actually think it was the complete opposite, that there was the, the third way view of this was that by, uh, as Jonah Levy has called, turning vice into virtue, by by encouraging responsible behavior from welfare recipients, you would actually rehabilitate the welfare system in the eyes of the public and you would make it more popular. In fact, the exact opposite happened. And I think this is something that certainly New Labour didn't intend. I think they had good intentions. But by 2010, after 15 years in which the British public had really not heard any positive arguments about the welfare system or its users, public opinion shifted. Mm -hmm. So in a way, the direct policy consequences of new labor weren't so, so bad for the welfare system, but the discourse they created around it then had these negative long-term consequences. So I think that's, I think that's largely true. I think, I think new labor's welfare reforms generally had quite positive effects. I think what I would say, and this goes back to some of the things that you were talking about with um, Jane Gingrich on the podcast, is that I think There was this um, big change in discourse and that had a big effect. But I think more broadly, 
it will be fair to say that New Labour didn't revolutionise British politics or didn't entrench or make permanent, I think, the changes that they wanted to bring in. And so actually from 2010, you see a reversal of nearly all of the policies that were brought in by New Labour, cuts to many of the, uh, uh, many of the, um, public services that they funded better. And so I think there was, if you like, a failure to make the policies politically sustainable. And actually, New Labour enacted a set of welfare reforms that actually sort of undid themselves over time by turning the public against the welfare system. So I think a, a fair reading of New Labour's time in office would be that it did a lot of good. And goodness knows now, you look back to the 2000s when I was a teenager, and you think that was this kind of glorious time to be alive. But 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 I think, I think there was a failure to... Th- to think about how they could revolutionize British politics. And in the end, the job of a social democratic party is to, is to make entrenched and sustainable and long-term changes to the relationship between the economy and society. Something Labour Party did in the 1940s, but I think uh, failed really to do in the 1990s and 2000s, despite having good intentions and, and despite doing a lot of good with their policies at, at the time. Mm-hmm. When I put my my comparative politics hat on, though, then the question is, how much does the British system really allow you to make these long-lasting, permanent, path-dependent changes when the British system, of course, allows you, uh, gives parliament and government really much more leverage on changing policy radically and quickly than many other countries? So that's a very fair comment. Uh, It's certainly true that in the UK, First of all, we don't have the sort of involvement of societal actors like trade unions, the business organizations involved in politics um, that, that tend to lead to greater policy stability. We also, of course, have a majoritarian electoral system where when uh, uh, when parties gain control after election, they gain complete control uh, and they can completely revolutionize what was done. But having said that, I think it would be fair to say that there have been times in British history when parties have made major and entrenched changes. And the obvious example there is the National Health Service, which was introduced in the 1940s by Labour. And really crucially, and this is the big difference to Labour's welfare reforms in the 1990s and 2000s, it's a completely universal system. So it's a, it's a system where everybody pays in and everybody takes out over their lifetime. And nearly everybody on average probably takes in what they take out. You know, if you're ill, you pay absolutely nothing to go to hospital, uh, but you've paid for it in your taxes and people are happy uh, to do that. And the NHS is extraordinarily popular in the UK. It's sometimes said that the NHS is Britain's national religion. Uh, You know, in the Olympic opening ceremony, of um, 2012, there was this famous scene with doctors and nurses tramping around the uh, Olympic Stadium. So Britain's self-image, the NHS, is extraordinarily important. So I don't think it's impossible to make changes that are entrenched. But I think the way that you do that, the way you have to do that, is to think about the political coalitions that will be caused by those policies. And the NHS very obviously led to a almost universal coalition in favour of it, in a way that welfare reforms didn't. I would like to talk to you a little more about this top-down perspective that you take in the book and that you've already outlined a bit now. Because in the podcast, very often now, when we talked about politics, it was very much a perspective of either representation or really the idea that socio-structural developments shape people's preferences, and that this is quite exogenous to 
political competition. And more or less everything parties can do is either change salience or try to unite some coalitions. But your perspective is really one where elites shape public opinion, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things, one of the, I, I guess one of the things that led me to write this book was that, you know, I did my PhD in the US. And in the US, when you study American politics, the first thing you're told is there's no such thing as public opinion. Public opinion is the creation of elites. In week one of your PhD, you read John Zala and everything is a development of John Zala. No, I think that gets taken too far in the study of American politics. And there's actually, there's actually an underdevelopment of the study of society within political behavior in American politics. But one cannot help but notice the big disjuncture between, in particular, the picture that comes from comparative political economy me, where you take that first class in comparative political economy, and the first thing you're told is, it's all about your class position, or your economic risks, or your income, and that shapes your beliefs. And so, for me, that disjuncture is very stark. And I think that um, European politics, and in particular European comparative political economy, has not thought enough about the ways in which political elites can have influence. And I think the more generally, the systematic study of political elites as a class, uh, as a set of people who have political behaviors and political beliefs in the same way that uh, voters do, has been very underdeveloped in European politics. And I think there's a real uh, opportunity for, for scholars to systematically study political elites, their influence and their beliefs. Um, so it's not that I, to clarify, it's not that I think that politicians can literally say anything and voters will simply follow them. I think there are a set of conditions, but I think they're very important. So in the UK, for example, one key condition was that the change in discourse for welfare came from a party that had traditionally always defended welfare and was trusted by voters on the issue of welfare. So that was important. Second, it was actually that there was consensus between parties. And that's been shown in America, American politics, that consensus has been shown to shift public opinion much more than a, uh, a situation where there were competing frames out there. So you, of course, have to think about the conditions under which it will happen. But, but I think it will be fair to say that European politics has not thought enough about the ways in which elites shape opinion. One point that you make in the book and also in the in, in the article, I think, is that public opinion has changed back a little bit. And that, of course, we've now entered a new phase in British po politics, maybe in the last in the last five years. So how has public opinion on welfare issues changed? So, I mean, uh, like everything else in politics now, of course, we're going to have to talk about pre and post coronavirus. And I, I, I don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of years. And, and indeed, it's something I want to research. But let's, let's talk about what's happened up until coronavirus. So from around about 2014, but more 2015, 2016, you can see a, a, a definitely discernible shift towards greater support for welfare provision and towards greater sympathy for and support for the users of welfare. Now, it hasn't rebounded back to where it was in the mid-1990s when it was at its highest, just, just when New Labour was coming to power, but it has rebounded um, somewhat. And uh, you know, this is actually the part of the book that I haven't written yet, so so I'm only going to offer you hypotheses, but, but let, me, let me offer a couple of hypotheses for why. I don't think it's the case that Labour, even under Jeremy Corbyn, actually, 
massively revolutionized its discourse on welfare users towards being extremely positive. But it did start to offer much stronger criticisms and critiques of the um, conservative welfare reforms. And also the British media, particularly from about 2016, 17 onwards, when a policy called universal credit came in, which is let's uh, say it has had very mixed effects at best. There's been a lot of problems with its implementation. There's been a very big rise in, in actually negative stories about the welfare reforms themselves that simply didn't exist before. So I think there has been something of a backlash against the reforms in the last few years. And what the hypothesis I want to explore in the, in the chapter of the book that I haven't written yet is that actually that was led in part by politicians and by the media changing the way that they talked about the reforms. Mm -hmm. um, mentioning Jeremy Corbyn brings me back a bit to the to the original argument that we were discussing and a bit the question of have now occupational backgrounds of politicians or people active in the Labour Party changed? And maybe also the question of how we should think about that kind of working class representation because in your paper and in our conversation, really the idea was of the you know, a miner, someone in a, in, in the manufacturing industry, a man probably. Right now, if you think more about other types of working class politicians, has labor managed to now mobilize, let's say, the urban non-white service worker? That's, that's a great question. So, so let me start with the second question, which is about the definition of working class. Now, it's absolutely right that the, the title of the paper that we started the podcast with is about coal miners. And of course, that's a very male definition of working class. Now, it happens to be the case that when I um, wrote the paper, I, I made a coding scheme to code MPs. And that coding scheme actually included the possibility of uh, female uh, if you like occupations uh, that were non-graduates and if you'd like lower skilled. So that might include things like um, secretarial work um, or working in retail or in call centers. The problem actually is that th that's a completely empty group. There just never were those sets of politicians in the Labour Party. And um, there aren't really today. So today's working class politicians, if they existed, would still come from manual occupations, of course, but would also come from a whole set of um, clerical call centre work, very big in the UK, um, retail work and other, I would say, low skilled service work um, like work in, in, in the food industry and, and things like that. Now, uh, I think it's very fair to say that there are there are still very low to no representation amongst those new working class groups. And part of the problem being, to come back to what we said earlier, that those groups are very rarely unionized. So it's not like there's a union of call center workers who are affiliated with the Labour Party and pushing their candidates into seats in the way that shipbuilding, mining, factory unions did in the past. So um, the, the answer is that, that I think it's very important not to use a, a male-only definition, but, but there just were no, there were basically no uh, female working class politicians in, in the past. Now, to come back to the question of today, uh, the answer again to that question actually is no. So, and that might be surprising. So let me explain very briefly. Uh, in the 2017 election, which was the first election Corbyn fought, he actually didn't have much control over the party apparatus and didn't have much success in getting his own candidates into seats, despite the fact that Labour actually did um, gain seats in that election and did much better than, than had been expected. Um, so the types of MPs that were getting elected in 2017 were largely the same types of MPs who'd been elected under uh, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair and, and Ed Miliband before 2015. 
2019 election that just happened, it's fair to say that there was a change, and there was a change towards more Corbyn-supporting candidates getting into office. But those Corbyn-supporting candidates, despite what they might say on their uh, election literature, were not candidates really of the working class. They're, the new, new MPs that have come in on new candidates in 2019 are what I might term, if you like, left careerists. So these were people who have a career in the Labour Party or in affiliated organisations, but they often come from uh, full-time trade union campaigning, local authority work. Um, but many of them, even if they had been in trade unions and called themselves working class, actually had still been to university um, and had still had largely white-collar jobs. And they were still mostly party insiders. They were just a slightly different type of party insider whose power base was much more towards the left of the party and, and, and towards Corbyn. Um, so I think the answer, unfortunately, is that is that no, we haven't seen really any increase in the representation of working class people as defined by people who come from um, occupations uh, on the lower rung of the ladder. Mm. And what do you think parties could potentially do to change this, especially parties of the left? So um, the one of the obvious things uh, that has succeeded in getting women into politics is the use of all women shortlists. And I think, I think whatever one thinks about them, and I, I'm a strong supporter, I think you have to say that they've been extraordinarily successful. And in the Labour Party, Labour Party in the UK now, in the House of Commons, is actually a majority female, I think for the first time in 2019. Uh, and a lot of that is due to the use of um, shortlists for seats where the party mandates that they must be only available to women. Um, now, could you do a working-class-only set of um, uh, uh, selections I'm not sure that would work as well, simply because there isn't a huge pipeline of working class legislators trying to get selected but failing, which is what was happening to women in the past. So I think a slightly different um, uh, you know, set of interventions would be needed and probably a slightly longer term set. One of them, which is actually being tried by the Conservative Party, and interestingly, is trying to tackle the problem of the expense of running. So the Conservative Party has started to offer fairly small but still significant bursaries to candidates while they're trying to get elected and while they're standing for office to try and allow them perhaps to leave their job uh, and, and allow low-income people to afford the process. And I think that idea of actually paying candidates is something that could be considered. But more generally, I think we would need a much greater effort to reach into society to strengthen the links between parties and society groups to bring working class people into politics. Because as I said, the parallel with women isn't perfect because there were lots of women in the 1980s and 1990s who wanted to get into politics but couldn't because there was sexism in the selection process. But the same intervention would not work, I think, immediately for working class politicians because that pipeline isn't there yet. Tom, we're already coming to an end of the podcast. There's one final question that I want to ask you that I ask all participants in the podcast, and that is for reading recommendations. One more political science piece and another piece that's academic, non-academic, maybe a piece of fiction. Great. Okay. Well, I'm slightly cheating here because I have the advantage of having listened to the previous episode. So I knew this, I knew this question was coming. Um, but let me talk, let me talk about, um, a political science piece. This isn't exactly a political science piece. It's actually written by two academics, I think, from cultural theory. But this is the book that's had the most influence on me in the past year. And it's called Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism and a World Without Work uh, by Nick Cernicek and Alex Williams. And this is the book that uh, I don't agree with it all. Um, but for me, 
it's it's a book that's helped me understand Corbynism or the Corbyn Labour Party as a genuinely intellectual movement in the sense that there is an intellectual heft behind what they were doing. And this is a book that um, critiques the left in the New Labour era and around Europe, and it diagnoses the failure of the left as being one of imagination. So there's been a failure, they say, on the left to imagine a radically different future in the way that left-wing parties used to, and a rise of what they call folk politics, which is attempts to achieve very localised change, you know, local food or farmers' markets or small-scale campaigning, and a failure to what they call invent the future or to imagine a future where the power is radically shifted within society as a whole. And then the second half of the book is all about universal basic income, uh, and they argue very strongly for what they call a f- world without work. And in fact, their their demand is that we should embrace full automation, sit back and let the robots do it all for us. It's a challenging book. It's a book I don't agree with, but I thought it was fascinating. And it's really made me think very deeply about the future of the left and about the possibilities of UBI, a policy that I'm a bit lukewarm on, but, but, but a book that puts forward its case very, very strongly. And I'd really recommend it for political scientists if you want to read something that you won't necessarily agree with. Mm-hmm. And a f- piece of fiction or a non-academic piece of work? Great. Okay. Well, I think I think um, like everyone else in the UK, I've just finished *The Mirror and the Light*, the third the third Thomas Cromwell book by Hilary Mantel. So I won't bother with that. But uh, I, I thought about a book that I read very recently, which is completely left field. And this is I was in a bookshop and I saw this in a bookshelf and I just grabbed it and it was fascinating. It's called *The Contact Paradox* and it's by a guy called Keith Cooper. And this is a non-fiction work about the history of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I'm a bit of a Trekkie and a science fiction geek, so I love this. And it's a book that really takes on the paradox of if there are so many uh, stars and planets in the galaxy, why have we not been contacted by any other races and will we ever? And it's a fantastic explanation of that paradox and of history of all the characters and the ways in which we're searching for alien signals. And it actually convinced me that there may be lots of alien races out there, but it's probably impossible for us to ever hear anything from them. So it's a bit of escapism for for lockdown. I, I absolutely loved it. We'll definitely have to do another podcast episode on this. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Thanks so much. Really, thank you for the great conversation. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed the conversation.